Leonard Bernstein, the great orchestra conductor, was asked once, what is the hardest instrument to play? Without a moment's hesitation, he said, second fiddle. (laughs) He continued. He said, I can find plenty of first violinists, but it is so hard to find a second fiddle who can play with enthusiasm. He continues, the problem is, if we don't find the second fiddle, we do not have harmony. Now you can think about this for a long time, for a long time. Indeed, if we dig deep into our hearts, we're going to find that at the very core of any sin, the very heart of any failure, the very essence of conflict, there lurks pride and arrogance. There lurks wanting my way. There lurks the insistence of my opinion must be followed. There lurks me, my, and mine. Regardless of the kind of sin, regardless of the conflict, whether it be at home or among friends or among brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever it may be, regardless of the pain, you can trace the source all the way to pride. How many times have I heard, and I'm sure you did too, where people say, swallow your pride. Just swallow your pride. And you and I know that it is nearly impossible to swallow pride. It doesn't taste as delicious as an hors d'oeuvre. Trust me. Because pride can never be swallowed. In fact, it is easier to swallow the Pacific Ocean than to swallow your pride. Pride can only be dealt with one way, and that is to break it down into pieces and place it at the altar. In fact, Jesus, with his sense of humor, he credited the Pharisees of being able to swallow a camel. (laughs) But he never hinted that you can swallow your pride. Not one time. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, particularly the first 13 verses that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul is saying, as surely as day follows night, as surely as winter follows fall, as surely as April follows March, as surely as these things are predictable, sin will follow pride. Pride will always lead to sin. Arrogance and self-importance will always lead to failure. In the last message, we left 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul told us that just as an athlete must have his mind control his body, not the other way around, so must the believer in Jesus Christ in his and her conduct. So must the believer in Jesus in the running of the spiritual race. So must the believers in the Lord Jesus in their exercising of self-control. Why? He said the reason he himself, the great apostle, does that 
is because his fear that he may be disqualified. This great man of God, this great apostle, who had preached so faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has ran the race well, who has served God faithfully, and yet he does not want to become disqualified. And that is why when the Apostle Paul comes to chapter 10, he's the great apostle. He said, let me give you exhibit A. Those of you who presented papers or financial papers or whatever, you showed graphs and signs, you always had exhibit A and exhibit B, exhibit C. These are all of the exhibits, A to Z in one. All the exhibits are here, and it is Israel. Despite of their privilege of being called the people of God, despite of their advantage that they had, despite of the miraculous signs that they saw with their own eyes, despite of seeing the supernatural intervention of God again and again, and despite of witnessing firsthand God's power at work, and yet pride got hold of them, and they became disqualified of entering into the promised land. Please, please, whatever you do, don't miss, don't miss the passionate plea in the voice of the great apostle. Don't miss that earnestness in his warning that we should not allow our bodies and our emotions control our minds. Here there is a bleeding heart who has so deep a concern for the believers. And he's saying, please, please learn from history. Please, please take heed from the utter failure of Israel. Please understand there is only one consequence to your indifference. Please don't repeat their mistake. Why? Because the surest way to fall into temptation and sin is to place your confidence in yourself and become smug about it and become smug about what only God could have given you. Many years ago, one of my mentors used to say to me, for which I'm very, very grateful, Michael, pride is like a beard. If you let it alone, it's going to grow and grow and grow. You have to shave it every day. You have to shave it every day. Because sometimes we kind of ignore this and we walk on a happy, merry way, and the beard is growing. One of the things I learned through the years, and I continue to learn, is that pride is the one disease that makes everyone sick except the one who suffers from the disease. In fact, uh, a story I attribute to the former boxer Muhammad Ali, some of you younger ones may not even know, but I think most of you know how pompous he was, and apparently story told that he was flying on an airplane, and the steward of the flight attendant said to him, said, fasten your seatbelt. He said, no. She said, please fasten your seatbelt, but he refused. And finally, he looked at her and said, you need to understand, I am Superman. Superman does not need to fasten his seatbelt. Upon which the smart lady looked at him, and she said, yes, but Superman does not need a plane to fly. (laughs) 
You see, spiritually speaking, the Christians to whom Paul is writing and the Christians who are here today, the Christians of the 21st century, are in a dangerous place. Back then, they were feeling, the Corinthians at least, they were feeling that they're super spiritual. They were feeling that they're spiritually superior. They were feeling that they knew better. They felt that they were immune to temptation. Uh, They felt that they had more gifts than anybody else. They're so gifted by God. They were saved, baptized, sanctified, and satisfied. We have a lot of them these days. They were lacking in no spiritual gift. They were strong and mature, and they're free to live which way they want to live. And Paul is saying to them, you are self-deceived. You are endangering your spiritual life. You are living on the far edge of freedom, and you're about to fall off. You are stretching your liberties out to an extreme, and you're about to reach the point of no return. In fact, verse 12 is a key verse in this passage. It really is. Therefore, Remember the rule about therefore. You've got to find out what it's there for, right? Therefore, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Beloved, let me tell you something. This verse is not engraved and framed on the wall of my study, but I can tell you as God is my witness, it is framed and engraved on the walls of my mind and my heart. This verse helped me from going to the edge several times. This verse has been a great blessing to me. This verse has ministered to me many a times. Three things from this verses 1 to 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Three things. Write them down if you're taking notes. First of all, you find the privilege of grace, and don't you ever forget that grace is an incredible privilege. And so many of the downfall of some of the pastors that I know is because they have ceased to think it's a privilege and took it for granted, and it led to their demise. Verses 1 to 4, the privilege of grace. Secondly, the pride of life. Verses 5 to 10. And thirdly, the principle we must learn. Verses 11 to 13 the privilege of grace. I said already, Paul has a passionate plea, and his passionate plea here is that, remember what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Remember how they were privileged by God's grace. Remember they were liberated from the slavery of Egypt all by grace. After so many years where they were physically abused by Pharaoh, uh, they were being maligned by their slave masters. They lived with the lashes and the whips on their backs, and and they were knee-deep in the mud of the slavery of Egypt. But God, can you say with me, but God heard their cry, and He sent him a deliverer. And he sent ten plagues on Egypt and the Egyptians, and they kept them safe. He revealed his supernatural power to them again and again 
and again. He performed miracles of parting the Red Sea. He provided them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And what happened after all of that? After all of that? Some of them, now most of them, became disqualified from entering into the promised land. Why? Well, they have fallen into idolatry, immorality, and rebellion. And Paul is saying to the self-confident Christians, any self-confident Christian, please, please don't do this. Don't let this happen to you. For they were not only delivered by their hand of God, but they were also baptized into Moses. What does that mean? By the way, it has nothing to do with water baptism. I'm going to explain that to you. The word baptizo in the classic Greek means to identify with, to identify with. So, when you got baptized into Christ, you don't only acknowledge that He's your Savior and Lord, but you identified with Christ. That's what baptism, in its classic sense, means, the word baptizo. And therefore, the Israelites identified with the faith of Moses. Why? Because they had no faith of their own. So they kind of identified with the faith of Moses. And you say, Michael, how do you know that? Every time, at the first sign of trouble, they want to go to Egypt. They missed the kebab. (laughs) They said that. Actually, I'm not making it up. (laughs) The pass of meat. Why? Baptism here has nothing to do with water baptism, simply because when the Israelites crossed the sea, it was dry land. They didn't get their feet wet, let alone their bodies. There's nothing to do with water. In fact, the folks who really got baptized and soaked all the way through were the Egyptians. I mean, they were drenched. Now, don't laugh. Some of them are my ancestors. (laughs) Not only were the Israelites were delivered from slavery, not only they identified with Moses, but they were provided for in every way, physically, spiritually, the privilege of grace. Say that with me. Now the pride of life, which often follows the taking of grace for granted. Pride, pride, pride. Pride did what pride always does, always does. You know, it's a great privilege of living long enough to see it. Pride did what pride always does. All of Israel were recipients of that common grace, that common blessing of liberty. All of Israel identified with Moses. All of Israel received support in the wilderness, but out of the entire Israelite, nearly two million people, only the family of Joshua and the family of Caleb entered into the promised land from that generation. Beloved, let me tell you something. There's something that you must understand from the Scripture. That's why people don't want to believe the Scripture anymore. But there's something you must understand in the Scripture. Whether it be in the Old Testament, Israel, 
whether we'll be in the New Testament, the professing church, there's always, always, always have been a small faithful remnant. Read the Isaiah, book of Isaiah. It's all about the faithful remnant. It's called remnant theology. Not all the people of Israel were saved. They were saved out of Egypt, but not saved into the promised land. Not any more than all of those who claim to be Christians and they go to church and they do all the rituals are going to be saved. Only the faithful remnant back then as it is now. Oh, yes, Israel was privileged, but most of them became proud. Listen to me. Even Moses. This thing really gets to me. I don't mind telling you that. The man of God, that they said, no man was more meek than Moses. He's a privileged man, a great leader. He was disqualified from entering into the promised land because he disobeyed the Lord, and he struck the rock with his rod instead of speaking to it as God told him to, as if the power is in that rod. You see, he saw the rod opening the this year, said, oh, the power is in the rod. God said, you don't understand, the power is in my word. Speak to it. And he didn't, and he missed out. One of the great, the great feelings that I'll never forget to the day I die, when I stood where supposedly Moses has stood on my Pisgah, looking down. So this is on the Jordanian side, up in the mountain. And you look down and you see the promised land. And God said, you see, you're going to see it with your eye, but you're not going in there. Question, where does pride come from? Pride comes from misusing your freedom in Christ. Pride comes from misusing of God's blessings that He gives you. Pride comes from self-centeredness instead of being God-centered. Pride comes from self-pleasing instead of daily, moment by moment, say, Lord, how can I please you? It comes from placing confidence in self instead of being placed on Yahweh. In the same way, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's saying to us that when Christian believers do not subject their appetite to Christ, when Christian believers do not exercise self-control under the power of the Holy Spirit, when Christian believers do not control their temper, their emotions, their action, their freedom, they become disqualified in the same way. They indulged in murmuring. They indulged in complaining. They indulge in maligning. They indulge in ingratitude to God. They indulge in careless lifestyle and become disqualified. The Israelites became disqualified because here you see them, verses 7, 8, 9, 10. First of all, in verse 7, idolatry. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Verse 8, sexual immorality. Verse 9, tempting God. And verse 10, complaining and murmuring against God and against Moses. 
See, when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the Israelites immediately persuaded weak-knee Aaron. Aaron was a weak-knee brother. It really was. You know that. They said, oh, Aaron, (laughs) here's our gold. Here's our ornaments. Make us an image of a bull, which is the god of power in Egypt, Apis. And let's have a party like we used to do in Egypt. And let's get drunk and drown our sorrow like we used to drown our sorrows in Egypt. And they had a party worshiping Apis. Beloved, listen to me. Please comprehend what I'm trying to tell you. Idolatry begins and ends in the heart. You don't have to burn incense to an image, as you see with the Buddhists and Hindus and all the other people, to be an idolater. No, no, no. Whatever constantly occupies your thoughts, whatever constantly occupies your time, whatever constantly occupies your energy, whatever constantly occupies your finances, to the exclusion of God, That's an idol. You know that person that you are dating who's not a believer? And you think that, well, you know, when I marry him or marry her, I'll change him. God, I want this person. You know that business deal that stinks up to high heaven? They said, oh, God, this is the deal of a lifetime. I really, really, really want that. You know that relationship that doesn't belong in your life? And you know that it doesn't belong to your life. And you know that it's pushing you to the edge of your Christian freedom. Yet somehow you continue in it. Be careful. Be forewarned. Be forewarned. What are you doing? You're tempting God. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse 6, the Israelites received their answer for tempting God. And they really were. I mean, they were testing His patience. Sometimes I really genuinely feel that I'm sometimes testing God's patience. I'll come to Him with, with heartbrokenness and said, please forgive me. And God sent them little fiery serpents that <laughs> bit them and caused so many of them to die. Little fiery serpents. That's why God said, put a, a brass serpent on the stick and lift it up, and those who will look at it will be healed. This is a, really a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. They went from idolatry to immorality to testing God and trying His patience. And worst of all, they murmured, they complained because they were discontented. Beloved, listen to me. Even in the age of grace, in the New Testament, God does not look favorably on discontentment with His will. In Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be contented whatever circumstance I'm in. Listen to me. Contentment is not something you're born with. Contentment is something you learn. You train yourself. You train yourself. doesn't come naturally. Listen, after 52-plus years of walking with the Lord, I'm confessing to you, after all these years of walking with the Lord— I'm not only continuing to learn this lesson, but sometimes when I face a very negative circumstance and that will cause me to be tempted to murmur or complain or be discontented, I immediately stop, and I start counting the blessings. And I found that there are too many to number. <laughs> I lose count. Number one is 
Number two is, and thirdly, he comes to the principle that we all must learn, every one of us. Nobody can be exempt. In these verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul makes it very clear that this disqualification of the disobedient Israelites was an example to us. It's a warning to us, not just to the Hebrews, <laughs> but to the New Testament believers in the 21st century. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. The end of the age has ever been since the time Jesus was ascended into heaven after the resurrection. Beloved, listen to me. I don't say that with any feeling inside of me other than sorrow and pain. Now you understand why there's some preachers and some pastors are trying to disengage from the Old Testament. Because it's a warning. They don't want that warning. They don't want to consider these warnings. They don't want to be forewarned. So ditch the Old Testament. Verse 12. Here's, I'm going to give you a Yusuf translation. Not interpretations, but just translation. Because I like to bring it in the vernacular. Therefore, let no one become cocky. That's really what it means. But rather be forewarned. Let anyone who takes credit for only what God has done be forewarned. Let anyone who twists the Word of God to please people be forewarned. Peter, the chairman of the board, the chief of the apostles and the disciples, allowed his strength and his bragging. And he said to Jesus, if they all leave you and forsake you, you can trust Big Peter. Oh, Big Peter will take care of you, Jesus. A few hours later, he was swearing he never knew Jesus. If anyone thinks that he or she can stand without Jesus, let him be forewarned. Failure is on its way. Church of Sardis was so proud of its reputation, and they took pride in that reputation. And in Revelation 3, 1 to 2, Jesus warned them. He said, they are spiritually dead and do not know it, and they must repent. Churches that are denying the power of God's Word, churches that are dishonoring the Ten Commandments, churches that are picking and choosing what to believe and what not to believe from the Word of God, need to be forewarned. As carelessness with God's Word increases, and we're seeing it now, openness to temptation increases also. As carelessness with God's Word increases, resistance to sin is weakened. As confidence in one's own interpretation of the Scripture increases, false belief systems become entrenched. I take those words very, very, very seriously. All of us, let's be forewarned. The more we place confidence in ourselves, the more vulnerable 
we are to sin. The times when we think we're spiritually strong and we're not worried about anything, and we don't lean on the arms of God, be very careful. Be forewarned. That's the time when you really need to throw yourself on the arms of Jesus and the arms of mercy. Now the old song, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Sing it. You'll love it, especially in the times when you desperately need it. Even though our church is known as preaching uncompromised truth, beloved, listen to me, that should not mean that we rest on our blessed assurance that we must continuously thrust ourselves deeply and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit, not less. Verse 13, Paul gives us an urgent reminder. No temptation has overcome you, but such is common to man. But with the temptation, he gives the way out. The word temptation here means test. So it means test. A test to a faithful student who studied hard, worked hard, is not but an opportunity to show their metal, their grit. The same test is an opportunity for the careless student who never studied, never worked hard, to fail. To one, the test spells success. To the other, that same test spells failure. Temptation and test come to all of us all the time, and I would to God that God be standing here today and say to you that I have succeeded 100% of the time. I would to God, but I haven't. But the secret is how to know. It's to know where to go when you failed. Don't stay in your failure. I'm often saying to the Lord, and, and I pray with my brothers between services as well as my personal prayer life, every time I'm constantly saying to the Lord, I have no strength of my own whatsoever. I am utterly, hopelessly, and totally dependent on you. Verse 13 is my greatest encouragement. God is faithful, and He will not test you beyond your ability to bear. Amen. How? By providing you of an escape hatch. <laughs> but only if you prevail yourself to that escape hatch. It's there for you to prevail. If you prevail, if you refuse it, and I often cling to that promise constantly. I want to tell you this as I conclude. John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, I read that book when I was 12 years of age, and it literally transformed my life. And then I read it again and again and again since then. It must be read by every believer, young or old. Pilgrim's Progress wrote it in prison because he preached without a license. Go figure. In one scenario in that book, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, the two of them, they fall asleep in a field that was owned by the giant named Despair. Giant Despair finds them, and he takes them into a dark castle known as Doubting Castle. 
And there in Doubting Castle, despair puts him in this dark, sinking dungeon. No food, no water. On the advice of his wife, giant despair first beats him up mercilessly. And then he suggested to them they should commit suicide. They just kill themselves. No hope. After the giant leaves, the two companions begin to talk to each other and discussing this. And finally, Christian remembers. All of a sudden, he remembers that he has a key in his pocket. He has a key in his pocket. He said, I have a key in my pocket called promise, and I will, I am persuaded, it will open any locked door in Doubting Castle. And sure enough, it opens the doors of Doubting Castle and opens the gates. And then they go out and find themselves on the king's highway once again. Now, beloved, wherever you are, only you know where you are. Only you know whether you are on the king's highway and totally oblivious to the traps that are being set in front of you, whether you are in the field of the giant despair, whether you are in Doubting Castle, you can throw yourself on God's mercy. You can use God's promise as your key to unlock whatever you've been locked into. Get back on the king's highway as we pray. Father God, in the name of the precious Lord Jesus, your Son, your beloved Son, our beloved Savior and Lord and Master, we come to you and we ask you that you will constantly remind us of the keys that you have given us in your promises, that we may unlock the doors of which imprisoned us, whatever it they may be, and so that we would walk back on the King's Highway, for we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, praise the Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.